Um, so last night, um, there were, uh, George was one of them that went out to Calvary Chapel Upland, and um, I was uh, definitely uh, blessed um, to have been asked to go out there, and Randy Walls, uh, pastor of uh, Calvary Chapel Upland, had asked if I, I would go up there and, and teach on the Tuesday. So he has, uh, he taught on Sunday, Palm Sunday, a uh, message on, uh, on, on what happened on that day, then uh, there was, there was um, uh, Pastor Ryan Hussein from uh, Calvary Chapel, uh, Sweet, Sweetwater or Sweet, I think it's Sweetwater, but anyway, it's from Banning, Calvary Chapel Banning out there, and then uh, I taught last night, and then tonight is Frank Sanchez from um, the fellowship in, in Colton, and so it was just, we had a blessed time there. Um, went over uh, basically a snapshot of what took place on this week when Jesus, uh, you know, we would consider it and we look at it as the Passion Week um, and what happened on that day before he went to the cross up, up to that day. Uh, silent is Wednesday. Wednesday is pretty silent as far as that week is concerned. Um, there's a lot of preparation going on for the Passover um, but as far as uh, what took place with Jesus, um, we, we don't have uh, anything at all. So this evening, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to take uh, Pastor Randy's um, suggestion. He said, you know what, if I were you, I'd take what you went over tonight, which was yesterday, and just share it with your um, church on, on Wednesday. And um, so that's what we're going to do. We're going to... Go into, uh, we're going to start off in Matthew 21, and we're going to go through a few chapters. Of course, I'm going to give you, I can't, we can't go into these chapters in depth, um, or we'd be here for the, you know, like the rest of the night <laughs> is what we'd be doing. In fact, I was looking at some of the, um, the studies that I've done in the past, and just one chapter, I think it was chapter 20, was it 26? Yeah, 26. It was, I broke it down into four parts. I think it was four or five uh, different teachings. And so you can imagine everything that's here. It's just absolutely beautiful um, what we can glean from it and understand just how much Jesus loves us. So let's go before the Lord and pray, and then we'll get into our study. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for loving us the way that you did. You sent your Son and to die for us in our place. And we were in mind when you did that. And to reconcile everyone who would believe in the Son. And by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, there is reconciliation, there is the forgiveness of sins, there is the remission of sin. And so we are truly thankful for that. We are quickly approaching Resurrection Sunday. And this is just a reminder of some of the things that our Lord did on that road, on that week, to the cross. And so, Heavenly Father, I ask that you would speak to us this evening. Help us to, help us to learn how to focus on the most important thing in our lives. And that is to be about your business, glorifying you. In not allowing any of the distractions, anything uh, that is before us that we're confronted with um, to make us deviate 
from a life that brings you glory. Lord, I pray that you would refresh us this evening, that you would stir us up, and that you would once again remind us of the perfect and agape love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the title of this evening's message is For the Joy Before Him. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You know, we're reminded with those two verses how it is that we are to live life. You know, casting off anything that would cling to us closely, anything that would ensnare us, that would weigh us down, and to run the race uh, in a light fashion, keeping our eyes fixed, focused on Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I can't help but think of so many things that plague us today, that, that kind of drag us down and weigh us down. And, and we need to learn to every day cast those things aside. And I think that we have the perfect example before us. Uh, the perfect ex- example is found in Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take basically a snapshot. And we're going to go from, a, you can say, uh, take an aerial shot of um, a few days Uh, of this week, Passion Week. At the same time, we're going to come in a little closer and uh, to understand what we have before us. We're going to start off with Palm Sunday, which we did that on Sunday, but just leading up to what we have before us. For the joy that was before Him, He went all the way to the cross. He fulfilled the Father's will. So it's Palm Sunday, and we know that the city of Jerusalem is absolutely... uh, It's filling up with tens of thousands of people. In fact, it's believed that Jerusalem during this time would go from having, you know, a a couple thousand, uh, I mean, uh, about 10,000 people to over 2 million, over 2 million people. So if you can imagine uh, the, the number of people that are coming in, and there's an excitement about it. They're coming in to celebrate the Passover for 33 years, the Lord had been walking out the will of the Father for the last three years, uh, from the point, uh, three to three and a half years from the point that he was baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, um, to this very day, uh, the Lord Jesus was, um, was performing miracles, he was teaching, he was correcting, he was uh, discipling these 12 apostles and many more that were following him, and he was fulfilling the Father's will as we saw on Sunday he was fulfilling on that day Zechariah 9.9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, having salvation as he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And how wonderful that, that particular moment was. They had it right. But how fickle the people were as well, because they wanted a different kind of a king. We're going to learn a little bit about that in, in a few moments. But for three years, Jesus had taught, corrected, performed miracle after miracle, showing that he was the Messiah, the Son of God. 
And for three years, he had healed the sick. We know that he made the lame walk, the deaf to hear, the mute speak, the blind see. Uh, he poured himself out in teaching these 12 men who would turn the world upside down, actually right side up, right? And he fulfilled the Father's will, teaching them. And these were his eyewitnesses, these disciples, these apostles, these 12 apostles and all the disciples. They were his eyewitnesses to all that had taken place up to that point. And then what would take place with his crucifixion and his resurrection after three days and even his ascension as we see that in Acts chapter 1. And we learned on Sunday also how days before Palm Sunday, there was something very special that Jesus did. And it was for this reason that it's recorded in John 12, 18, that more people were gathering unto Jesus. And that was the resurrection of Lazarus. So all these things had taken place. We know that Jesus' entry into the city of Jerusalem was not a, it was not a casual stroll. It wasn't something light. It was to serve a purpose. He had openly declared that he was truly the king of Israel the anointed one, the promised Messiah, the one who had been prophesied of by the prophets of God. This entry into Jerusalem was one that was prophesied by Zechariah and in no way could be misconstrued as being anything other than him proclaiming that he was the Messiah, the anointed one, coming into Jerusalem. And so the day has gone by. It's Sunday And from the Mount of Olives, there's the Kidron Valley, and there's the old city. So he comes back from the old city. He comes down into the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and he continues to go eastward to Bethany, not too far from the Mount of Olives. He stays the night in Bethany. On Monday, he comes back toward Jerusalem. He's on his way back, and he weeps over Jerusalem, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. And says that calamity will visit them. He says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. That's in Luke chapter 19, verses 41 through 44. So he wept over Jerusalem. Because his heart was for the people. He wanted them. Above all, for them to open up their eyes and understand who was before them. Because we know God's heart. He says that he wishes that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is his desire. And so he wept as he comes back. But as he comes back into the temple, so he comes back from Bethany over uh, the the Mount of Olives and and, uh, across the Kidron Valley and up into the old city and up into the temple. Um, We were at the southern steps where more than likely that was the entrance that Jesus came into the temple and he cleansed the temple saying, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Matthew 21, 13. And then at that very moment, after he does that, he begins to heal, give sight to the blind, make the lame walk. According to Matthew 21, 14, it says, And the blind and lame came, in, uh, came to him in the temple, and, healed, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did 
and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. So right away, remember what it was that the people were saying when he came into Jerusalem on Sunday. Oh, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right? And here we have the, the children in the temple. They were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, the chief priests and the scribes knew exactly what they were saying. They were referring to him, the son of David, as having deity, the son of God. And so they asked him, do you, do you hear, Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus' response left them with their mouths, well, wide open. You could say that their, their jaws dropped down to the ground. Jesus' response left them speechless. He said, yes. Have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Have you not read that? And that's Matthew twenty-one sixteen. That's how he responded to them. And then, and this is Monday, this is as he goes into the temple and he does this, and he has this confrontation with the chief priests and the scribes. And after that, Jesus left Jerusalem, went back to Bethany, and spent the night there, according to Matthew 21, 17. It says, And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So now we come to Tuesday. As I considered all that we have before us, and we can go through 21, 22 of Matthew, 23, 24, and 25. And then on to 26. There was so much. So much going on. And yet our Lord kept His focus. And then He did so much before going to the cross for you and I. And I think this is a great lesson for us. You see, for us, we can get so distracted so easily. We have so many things going on. And and, and, uh, sometimes... um, it could be anything that takes us um, off track. It, it, cause, it causes us to go in a different way. And so again, I, I want to remind you that, that the Lord, he, it would have been enough. It would have been enough for Him to simply have entered into Jerusalem, uh, fulfilling prophecy. He didn't have to do anything else, didn't have to teach, didn't have to confront, didn't have to do anything else. It would have been fine. It would have been enough if, if he would have just gone to the cross. And that was it. It would have been enough. But he did so much more. The Lord encourages us, his children, in Hebrews 12, too, that we read, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy that was set before him was the fulfillment of the plan of salvation. The fulfillment of the Father's will to finish the sacrifice on the cross so that you and I would have a way to be reconciled unto the Father through the finished work of the Son. That was, that's the joy that was set before him. In other words, 
in the simplest terms, the joy that was set before him was you and I. But he had to make sure that in order to make it possible for us to be reconciled unto the Father, that he fulfilled the Father's will and he went to the cross. And so much of what he did during this week, you could say was for your sake, was for our sake. It really was. And so we need to pay particular attention. We need to incline our ear just that much more to the things that he is teaching us at this very moment. It's worth our attention. And so even before Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame of it, Jesus healed and then he taught. And then he taught and then he taught some more. All of these things are for our benefit. He's teaching us even now how to live our lives to his glory and not be taken off course. In this world, you will experience tribulation. Jesus said, but take heart. I have overcome. But as Jesus was on this path to fully expressing his love toward us in his suffering, he further prepares us, his people, his disciples, with truth, to live lives filled with godly wisdom, hope, and confidence, without despair, doubt, or despondency, knowing that the best is truly yet to come when we arrive at eternity's shore and are welcomed into his glory. One day we will be there. But for now, this is what he gives us in order to live lives without doubt, without despondency, without despair, but filled with hope, filled with confidence, and filled with godly wisdom. It is for this reason I believe we should again pay close attention to what Jesus teaches here and what is recorded because it teaches us how to live in this world with godly wisdom and to the glory of God until Jesus either snatches us up, he raptures us up to be with them, or he says, this is enough, son, daughter, this is your last day, and he brings us home. Either way, for us, it's the same as Paul said, to live as Christ and to die as gain. For the Christian, it's a win-win all the way around. No matter how much we suffer here, it is not worth even mentioning compared to the glory that awaits us. That, that, is, that should be encouraging. That, that should be like, wow, you know, I couldn't imagine. Some people suffer unimaginably. And yet even that pales in comparison. Can't even be compared to the glory that awaits us. So the glory that awaits us is, is beyond our imagination beyond what we could even begin to express. So Matthew 21, 18 through 22, Jesus teaches on faith here. Um, So this is in the morning. This is Tuesday. So in verse 18, it says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive 
if you have faith. And so Jesus takes a moment as he's coming in. It's early in the morning. Again, he's coming from Bethany over the Mount of Olives. He's coming down and he sees this fig tree. He's hungry. And he goes to it, finds no fruit. If it has leaves, it should have fruit. It doesn't have fruit. He curses the tree. It withers. And of course the disciples are going to marvel. I mean, what would you do, right? If you saw this, uh, Jesus just spoke to that tree and it withered just like that. John, did you see that? Uh, yeah. James, did you? Yeah. Peter? <laughs> yeah. We, 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 we saw that. That's, that's amazing. They marveled. But he uses that moment to teach them about exercising their faith without doubt. We need to practice more of that. No doubt, just having faith. God's promises are yes and amen. They're, they're, they're solid. They're good. Matthew 20, 21, 22 As we read there, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. It's conditional. It's exercising faith. James says, faith without works is dead. In John 15, 7 and 8, uh, Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Oh, it's wonderful when when we prove to be Jesus' disciples by the way we live our lives. But you see, here, here's the thing, is, you know, as, as I say this, and as we go over, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. We read in John 15, uh, 7, if you abide in, uh, in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He's not a genie that you rub. He's not someone who you ask anything of and he'll just, perform it for you. As we abide in Jesus Christ and He abides in us, what happens is our wills align with His. And what we begin to do is ask for those things that would bring Him glory. That's what blesses and honors Him. That'd be like a child. A a child in their immaturity will ask for some things, sometimes that would harm them even. Now, would you, being the father that you are, would you give your child a serpent, a scorpion, it looks, it looks cool. It looks neat. Of course not, right? We wouldn't give them something that would harm them. It's the same way that the Lord would not give us something that would harm us. Sometimes we don't know that that would harm us. But as we ask for those things and we begin to mature in the Lord and we start to ask for those things that would bring Him glory, sometimes even learning how to use those things that are entrusted to us for His glory, that we couldn't do that before, then, oh yes, I will, I will give you that, and I will give you this, use it to my glory. And you do. And you start asking for those things. This is what we're seeing here. And, and he's, he's telling His disciples, ask, without doubting. There's more to this teaching, but... The bottom line is just that, that Jesus was teaching them about exercising faith that is void, that is without doubt. Again, he didn't have to do that at this time. Had he not taught enough up to this point? And this is what I'm trying to tell you. Jesus is hard-pressed on all sides. He's going to be sent to the cross here in a few days. And yet he's taking the time to do these things. 
It's for our benefit. And then we see here a lesson in discernment because Jesus' authority is challenged. Verses 23 through 27, we continue. And when he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them, I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, from where did it come from? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all, they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Um, we are to be ready to answer anyone who asks us for the hope that lies within us, right? But does that mean we engage everyone? I mean, do we have a duty to to answer everyone that comes to us? No, we can test them. We can. That's what Jesus did. That's this is great discernment. We we don't have to answer it. You know, there are some people who are sincerely uh, wanting to know about Jesus. I remember when I asked, I was sincere. I was not mocking the, 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 my friend, the man that was before me. I, I wasn't mocking him. I wasn't mocking his faith. I wasn't um, trying to discredit him or make him look bad in front of everyone else. I, I was sincerely asking, what was different about him? What, what is it that... Gave you that joy, and I, I don't know. It was just, I was sincere about it. There are other people who, who are not sincere, though, when they ask. And so we can discern that. We can ask a few questions. You know, the Jewish way is to um, answer a question with a, with a question. Let me ask you, and that's what Jesus did. He often did that, didn't he? He did that. He did that a lot. And I like doing that, too. When people ask me a question, I like to ask a question to see what their motive really is. And I ask, and I do that a lot, especially in the job that I have at the hospital. I, I ask questions because I want to see. I want to. I want to see where their or their their faith is. You know what their level of sincerity is, and then I can minister to them at that point and move forward from there. But Jesus here, he um, he teaches us to exercise discernment. And I think this is a great lesson for us. We ought to ask questions. Now, don't be quick to just answer what they are asking you. Ask them questions. See where they are. Where, where are they coming from? So you can discern. And you can answer a bit more accurately the true question that they're asking. And then as we go on from there, verse 28 through 32, Jesus goes on to challenge them, asking who actually does the will of the Father. It's the parable of the two sons. It's quite simple, right? And what do you think? He says in verse 28, a man had two sons. Now he's testing them out. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. 
but did not go. And so his question is, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Pretty straight, right? He says, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Oh, how powerful that was. Even at that moment, it didn't take him but after the next parable to figure out that he's talking about them. That's, it's funny when, when you are so set in your ways and you're filled with pride and you have things like this before you in God's word. Sometimes it takes you a few parables to figure out that, oh, this is not about my neighbor or that other person or my spouse. Oh, that's... He's speaking about me. It, it's me. Because this is very clear. He teaches about these two sons. Let me test you. If one son, he goes and uh, the father says, hey, do this. And he says he's not going to do it. And then changes his mind and does it. And then he goes to the second son. And his son, next son says, yes, I will do it, but never does it. Which one did the will of the father? The first one, right? He repented. He did a 180. And he did do his will. It's quite simple. For the prostitutes and for the tax collectors, they were the ones that he, Jesus was referring to them as saying, at the very beginning, they were saying no. But then they turned and they believed. They are the ones that are truly exercising faith in the one true living God. And that is Jesus as John had already declared, and you didn't believe him. But then he goes on. He talks about the wicked tenants. Uh, Verses 33 through 46, Jesus telling the Jews that the very prophets that were sent to them were rejected and even killed, and even the Son of God will be rejected and killed. And Jesus warned them of this rejection. And they still followed through with it. Again, Jesus is doing everything to lay it all clearly before them. Listen, this is what's going to happen. Talk about a love, a passion. A passion for salvation, to extend it to all mankind. He wanted even them to turn. He wanted all mankind. There wasn't one person he didn't want to turn from his wicked ways and turn to him for salvation. And then we talk about the parable of the wedding feast in 22, uh, chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. Many are invited, but many disregard the invitation to come into the glory of the king, holding on to the things of the world and even doing shameful things rather than accepting the invitation to come into the wedding feast of the king. You know, we talk about the wedding feast. One day we will commune with the Lord. We will have fellowship with him. Come, be a part of it. What do I have to do? But you just have to surrender your life to Jesus Christ and he will give you eternal life. And you too can one day come to the communion table with him. You will feast with him in all of his glory. Oh no, I'm, I'm too busy right now. I have other things to do. We see that before us in this parable of the wedding feast. They were, they were too busy. And they rejected he who invited them. 
other things that Jesus taught on during this time. And this was this day. This was just Tuesday. Tuesday was a very busy day. Paying taxes to Caesar. We just did that on Monday, right? The resurrection of the dead and how the Sadducees had it all wrong. Uh, the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. And so they, they confronted Jesus and they asked him about this issue. And he corrected them. He corrected the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the religious leaders, the chief priests. He corrected them. But he does much more. Because in chapter 23, he pronounces pronounces these strong woes of condemnation upon the scribes and the Pharisees who were leading many people astray, away from Jesus, you see, that's why for, for, for me, these were the false teachers of the day. How can we say, turn the other way, don't pay attention to them, they mean no harm. Well, I don't think the Pharisees meant any harm. I think they, they probably felt that they were going in the right direction, that they were teaching the right thing, and they did, know, did feel that way. But Jesus was very strong in condemning their false teaching. Think about that. And then leading into chapter 24, we have the disciples now with Jesus. And as if to um, kind of change the subject, I mean, he just got done, you know, proclaiming these woes on the Pharisees and the scribes. They they turned his attention to the temple. In chapter 24, verse 1, it says, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Seems almost impossible. But what happened in AD 70? That very thing. There was not one stone left upon another. The very thing that Jesus had said. Jesus teaches the whole day, including what is known as the Olivet Discourse, which is Matthew 24 and 25. In verse 3 of chapter 24, he says, As he sat on the Mount of Olives... The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when all these things will be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And he, he, he taught them chapter 24 and 25. Beautiful. So he sat down and his disciples were being taught right there. I can, again, I can just imagine the temple is right across the Kidron Valley. He's on top of the Mount of Olives and he's teaching them. He's telling them, these will be the signs of the end of the age right here. told them about the abomination of desolation, about the coming of the Son of Man. And the bottom line of Jesus' teaching on the Mount of Olives to His disciples was this. You need to be ready. How much closer is the rapture? How much more should we be ready about our Father's business? Not distracted about things. Again, our perfect example is before us, Jesus Christ. We should be all about Him. 
Not, not busy. I mean, you have the picture of Mary and Martha, right? Who chose the best place? It was Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. She was focused on him as he was teaching and he was speaking to her. Martha was busy. Now, he didn't condemn Martha because there's a time to work and to do those things. But you won't do it with the right heart if you don't take the time to sit down like Mary. Mary sat down as Jesus was there. And she and he had her full attention. Completely focused on him. And so Lord, the Lord is telling them then and telling us now, be ready. Be prepared and live with expectancy of Christ's imminent return. He can come back at any moment. Think about what occupies your time. How often you sit with Bible open, uh, on your knees, praying to the Lord. What, what are you going to be caught doing? We ought to live living lives that no matter what we are confronted with, that we would always be caught doing the will of the Lord. You know, we can be in such uh, incredible, living such incredible times in our lives, just difficult situations, and yet we can still be doing the will of the Lord, responding in such a way that He's glorified. Whether we're going through a bankruptcy, our children are wayward, if our spouse has gone away, we're losing our house, our cars, it it, it doesn't matter. Can I tell you, can I be very honest with you? It it doesn't matter. All All of that we will not take with us. What really matters is how we respond in those things. No matter what, the Lord, He will never take that joy away from us because it's, it's this blessed hope that we have in Him. And nobody can snatch us out of His hand. And so no matter what we're confronted with, we can glorify the Lord. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 36. As He's giving the Olivet Discourse, He says this to his disciples. He says, But concerning that day, verse 36, and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They didn't believe Noah. He kept telling them, but they, they didn't believe him. And so it will be in the day of the Lord. It, people will be doing everything else. They won't, they won't believe the people who are saying, you know, be ready, Jesus is coming. Be ready, Jesus is coming. They won't believe it. And then verse 40, he goes on and he says, Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that... If the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Just in a moment. 
In a moment, he could arrive. 2 Timothy, if you could turn there. 2 Timothy chapter 3. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to Timothy, writes this, and I believe this is a reflection of where we are today. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For there will be lovers, there will be people... There, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. That's the day in which we live in. These are the very people that the Bible tells us that we should have no part in. We should have no part with. Not participating in those things. But to remain separate unto the Lord, ready for His return. And in John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. That should be encouraging to us. You know, that in the Lord... Listen, today we'll have tribulation. But this life is like, like a vapor. Here one moment and gone the next. In the Lord we have overcome with Him. Jesus remained focused on fulfilling the will of the Father all the way to the cross. Even as He was challenged even as he was persecuted, even as he was falsely charged, even as he was falsely tried, he remained focused for the joy that was set before him. There was nothing that was going to distract him and take him off course. And that's how we ought to be, remaining steadfast and set on the Lord. And when things come our way, we, we can be like that, like that tough little kid, you know, that's playing football. And the only thing that he sees is that end zone. I'm sure you've seen these video clips to where it's like, wow, right? These kids that just, they get hit, they bounce to the side, they do a roll, keep going, get hit from the other side, even get hit on both sides, and they're still going. And now you're cheering for them, right? That's what we ought to do for each other. When we have, when we hit, we're not saying, oh, yeah, get down, stay down. Get sidelined, right? Go on the shelf. No, no, no. no. We, should, we should run the run with endurance. When we get hit, when we see that, ah, keep going. Don, keep going. Modesto, keep going. Robert, keep going. Keep going. Don't, don't lose sight of that end zone. It's there. It's right before you. Don't you give up. Not now. You need to keep going. It's there. You're almost there. We ought to be those cheerleaders for each other, encouragers of one another. Keep going. Don't lose sight. Jesus was our perfect example. I want to cheer you on. We have this beautiful prize of the upward call in Jesus Christ. And we're all reaching for it. 
the joy that was said before him, he remained focused on that. And I wanted you this evening to understand how much Jesus loves you. Because you're that joy. And the lengths that he went to prepare us even for the life that we live right now, we can't even begin to imagine. Even in these difficult times, to remain focused on the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and endure. Persevere. Continue on. In closing, it would have been enough for him to just simply go to the cross, but he didn't do it. He did all this for our sake. He taught us. He's teaching us right now. Consider his sacrifice, his suffering. And in the midst of it all, he's, he's laying all this out before us. Even before Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, Jesus taught, preparing us and teaching us how to endure difficulties and to live lives filled with the Holy Spirit and doing the will of the Lord, serving Him. And there's a place to serve Him within this church for each and every one of us. You know, in fact, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, we see as we... I know the ladies are going through... Uh, the um, pastoral epistles, um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 16. I mean, we're talking about serving the Lord. There's a place for each and every one of us. And, it's, and, and it has a purpose. It's not just to serve, just because, oh, well, you know, let's serve. Uh, it's just something good to do. No, no, no. What, what it does is it facilitates the maturity of the believer. That's what it does. So it's a purpose. There's a purpose in it. And so it is this week that we remember and consider what Jesus endured for us. Will you then consider this love that was first demonstrated to you and live with the sense of urgency and expectancy of Christ to the glory of God? Again, and I'll close with this. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Don't grow weary. Don't grow faint-hearted. I want to encourage you in Christ to keep going until the very end. We're almost home. We're almost home. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the love that you demonstrated to us on the cross by sending your only begotten to die in our place. And I thank you for the reminder of how it is that Jesus, our Lord, our Savior, how He remained focused on the goal of dying on the cross for us and in our place, even in the midst of such persecution as we will never know. 
Help us, Lord, to also, like him, stay focused regardless of what we are confronted with. Lord, may you be blessed and glorified in our lives until the day we are with you. Lord, help us, Lord, to walk by the Spirit and bring you glory. May we consider your suffering and your sacrifice and love you all the more. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name.